Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Man, what a set of readings. <laughs> um, we are going to actually dive into uh, the parable from Matthew 25 this morning. Uh, but all of these are tied together. Um, and they relate to one another. I actually noticed that they build. Uh, the first one uh, is the most negative. And by the time you get to Paul, he says, essentially, I'm convinced of better things for you. Even as he's still talking about uh, really the same thing in mind, the second coming of Jesus and the day of the Lord. Uh, but I'd like for us to look at the parable this morning from Matthew 25. Uh, parables uh, are these wonderful stories from everyday life. And Jesus uses them. Uh, in these remarkable, uh, brilliant ways. Uh, they come at us sideways. And at first, the parables seem um, ordinary or complex. They're, they're benign. Uh, and then they explode as we understand what Jesus is saying. Um, they sear themselves into our spiritual imaginations. Uh, the poet Emily Dickinson once wrote, tell the truth, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. And that's what I think of. That's what Jesus is doing. He's telling the truth, but he's telling it slant so that they won't be blinded. So they can actually learn it gradually um, and see what he's saying. These are Jesus's uh, spiritual curveballs in many ways. And so today, as we look at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, uh, really two main objectives. Uh, first, how do we understand this? We need to walk through it and see what is Jesus saying? What's going on in this parable? And then secondly, how do we apply it? And maybe ask a little bit about uh, why did Jesus tell this parable? Um, and think about how does it speak to us today? Whenever we encounter one of Jesus's parables, uh, they challenge us and they confront us and inspire us and encourage us in our faith. And so let's look this morning at Matthew 25, uh, the parable of the talents. And the first thing to understanding this is to realize that this is a part of a series. Uh, they're part of a series of parables and sermons. It's one amongst the sequence where Jesus is talking about uh, his future coming and even uh, the future judgment, the day of the Lord. Um, as I think about all of these parables and these dialogues, these teachings from Jesus, each one is like a brushstroke. Um, they're pointing to the future, but they're not giving us a, a photograph or a play-by-play. -play. It's a brushstroke. It's a painting. It's here's where things are headed. Um, and what's interesting is that they're all meant not to fuel speculation, but they're all meant to help us live faithfully now. That's the slanted edge on all of these parables, is to go, hey, how does this apply to us now, even as we think about uh, this portrait that Jesus is painting uh, of the future? It's interesting, in a few Sundays, we actually turn the, the chapter on the church year, and we'll begin the liturgical season of Advent. And a lot of people think of Advent as, here's the season where we prepare for Christmas. Um, and that makes sense. The Latin word Advent means to come. And so we think about the first coming of Jesus, his incarnation uh, as an infant. And so we wait and retrace those steps, waiting for him to come. 
But the Advent season, you'll actually hear this in a few weeks in the readings, it also looks ahead to this time when Jesus will come again. That maybe in a similar way to uh, Israel waiting on the Messiah to come, we are now waiting for our Savior to return. We're living between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming. And that's why many have said that the season of Advent is actually just the normal Christian life. Because we, we live between when Jesus came and when he will come again. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright says, learning to live appropriately between those two comings of Jesus, under the rescuing rule of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit is what it means to be a Christian. These are basic, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus as his followers. How do we live now in light of the gracious redemption brought at his first coming, in light of knowing that he will come again? And what are the brushstrokes that Matthew wants us to know? Well, Matthew in his gospel, it seems like the main thing he wants us to know is that no one will know when this will happen. He actually five different times points out that it's either unknown or a surprise. Um, so it doesn't do us a lot of good to try to figure out exactly when it will occur because Jesus is really clear that's not what we're supposed to do. It's going to surprise us. It'll come like a thief in the night. It'll be um, unexpected. And then Matthew will say, hey, there's a few things to think about as we look ahead to this idea that Jesus will come. Uh, first is a waiting and a watching. We're aware that he could come, that he could return. And we would rejoice to see that day and rejoice to see his appearing because we would get to see our Savior face to face. The other thing is he talks about wisdom. Uh, the psalmist said, help us apply wisdom to our days. How do we live wisely with this idea that Jesus will come again? And then third, faithfulness. How do we live faithfully uh, given the work that he has given us to do? That's what this parable really gets to. This is squarely in between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord. Uh, the first coming is verse 15, where it says the master uh, came and then the master went away. And then verse 19, now after a long time, the master returned. That's what we're waiting on. The master went away. When will he return? And this master gives these talents uh, to these three servants. And that's interesting because if you think about the talents, um, you think about what Jesus has given to us, it's clear that what he has given is gracious and generous and extravagant. None of these servants earn these talents. These aren't wages for work that they have done. Uh, they're a gift given by the master, just like salvation is a sheer gift of grace for those who follow Jesus. No one debates that, but there is work to do. Um, there is more to it. We aren't just saved from something. We are saved for something. Or as one scholar has put it, we are not only saved from sin, we are called into his service. That's what this parable gets at. And so to illustrate um, the gracious, generous, extravagant gift, um, this could refer to a few things. At one level, certainly it refers to our salvation that has been given graciously, generously, extravagantly. Second, it would apply to the spiritual gift we've received to be used for the sake of others and God's glory. Uh, something that, again, is generous and gracious and extravagant. 
A third, we have God-given abilities, talents that God has given to us. We didn't earn them or cultivate them, but they're given graciously and generously and extravagantly. And of course, um, there's a material element to this where we think about the resources, the material, physical resources and provision of the Lord uh, given graciously and generously and extravagantly. Now, I don't know about you. I actually think one of our barriers to understanding this passage is our familiarity with the word talents. Because what we think of as talent and what is being used here are different. (laughs) Here, Jesus is talking about an economic unit. It's money. Um, And let me just do a little bit of the math on here. I have a footnote here. My Bible says a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. Um, Now, if you heard this parable for the first time, you would know these units. You're not having to translate them in your head, right? And so here's a little bit more like what they would have heard. Well, one talent is 10,000 denarii, this, uh, this currency. Just a few chapters before this in Matthew 20, Jesus tells a parable about a master who goes out and hires servants for the day. Uh, And the point of that is at the end of the day, the servants are actually frustrated because they all receive the same pay, even though it looks like some of them worked harder or worked longer. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you've not earned this. (laughs) Um, And I will give this to who I want. Do you know how much money those day laborers make? One denarii. A talent is 10,000 of those. And so if you just do the math, um, and that's not my strong suit. I know some of you are probably really good at math. Um, Bradley is way better at math than I am. Um, But think about it. The minimum wage in Athens is $7.25. That makes a day's labor $58. So if you do the math, the one who received the least one talent, that's about $580,000, I think when we read this and hear, oh, this poor guy only got one, we, we imagine this really meager amount. Well, I don't know about you, $600,000 is pretty good. And so then do the math on these other two guys. Well, the one who got two talents, what's well, about double that? It's about $1.2 million. The one who got five, five times 600,000 is $3 million. So they would have heard that as Jesus is telling this parable. That the master gave to one servant, you get 600,000, uh, you get 1.2 million, you get 3 million. And the disciples are going, I'll take any of those. <laughs> All of those sound great. And that's part of the point is it is gracious and generous and extravagant. The master is not stingy with the one who gets one talent. He's just distributing the talent and the gifts as he sees fit. Once he gives them this incredible gift, this sacred deposit, then the master goes away. He's called them to be faithful and fruitful uh, with the gifts they've had, and then he returns, and you get the lessons. Um, There's some really interesting things happening in these lessons, and if you look at it, what's intriguing to me is that the one who has the five talents makes five more. The one who has two talents makes two more. They're equally faithful. They're not equally fruitful, 
but they're equally commended and rewarded. Friends, we're not going to have the same gifting from the Lord. We're not going to even produce the same fruit from the Lord. But we are called to the same faithfulness, and Jesus is just as pleased with the one with two who makes two as the one with five who makes five. Do you see that there in the passage? They're equally faithful, equally commended, and Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant to both. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. They get the same good result. And then we come to the third one here. Um, there's a lot of nuance to this passage, but it's pretty apparent. If we, if we invited our five-year-olds to come up and read this passage and say, what do you make of this? They would go, oh, we don't want to be the third one. That's the edge. You don't want to be this servant in how Jesus is teaching here. This servant also received this gracious, extravagant gift, $600,000. Again, not as much as $3 million or $1.2, but still quite a bit. Um, and not something that the servant earned. And it says in verse 18, that he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He wasn't fruitful with it. He wasn't a good steward of it. And so when the master returns... Uh, look at what the third steward says. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Now here's my takeaway here. And we can talk about good stewardship, bad stewardship, being fruitful, being faithful, not being fruitful, not being faithful. The issue for this third servant is he actually doesn't have an accurate read on the master's character says, I knew you to be a hard man. He's afraid of his master. He doesn't trust his master. He is worried about being punished by his master. Um, and it's just an invitation, I think, for us at the first to go, do we have a right view of the master? Do we see him as gracious and generous and extravagant? Do we see that we have a great hope for salvation or are we terrified of him? Because that's where his lack of good stewardship came from. He didn't understand the character of God. So he was afraid and did the wrong thing. That's a first lesson for us here. Um, and if you notice, the, the master is not pleased. I mean, the displeasure is pretty severe. He starts with, you wicked and slothful, and it ends with outer darkness. Not good. Yikes. You don't want to be this servant. That's what's clear in this passage. And so when Jesus says that this person took the talent, went away, dug it in the ground, and hid the money, what, or maybe even who, is Jesus aiming this parable at? Because whenever he would tell the truth and tell it slant, he had a target, one or more in mind. And so I think to apply it well, we need to think through what, what, what might have been in Jesus' mind as he's telling this. But why is he telling this? Who is he hoping hears this and will avoid being the third servant in this parable? Um, and Jesus could have had a few targets in mind. That's part of the genius of these parables is Jesus actually can give one teaching um, and he can hit a broad audience because his word is living and active. 
um, and God works through it. So uh, a few possibilities. First, Jesus may well have been aiming at the religious leaders of his day. I mean, all through this part of Matthew, Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders. They clearly are not on the same page. And so if that's the case, what would it look like if Jesus is saying, you religious leaders in Jerusalem in the first century, you have received a great gift and you have buried it in the ground? What would that look like? Well, Bishop N.T. Wright says the scribes and Pharisees, those leaders, uh, have been given the law of Moses. They have been given the temple, the sign of God's presence among them. They have been given wonderful promises about how God would bless not only Israel, but through Israel, the whole world. And they had buried it in the ground. They had turned that command to be the light of the world into an encouragement to keep the light for themselves. They took God's presence. They took his promise. They kept it to themselves and kept it for themselves. Instead of receiving with an open hand and serving with an open hand, they clenched their fists to hold and to hoard and even to fight those that they were called to bless and to serve. And so I think part of the application would be um, if they had received the law and they had received the temple, well, how much more have we received the gospel? And how much more then will we be called not to hide it in the ground, but to let it go forth and be seen and show forth? Um, If we keep the gospel to ourselves, it's the equivalent of burying a talent in the ground. That's not where it's supposed to be. Here's another um, intriguing possibility. Uh, Some think that Jesus was actually thinking about a specific community in the first century. Um, It's the community called the Qumran community. You might know of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered uh, in the mid-20th century. They belong to this group. And let me just tell you a little bit about this group. They were extreme. They were devoted. And they looked at Jerusalem, and they looked at the religious leaders and the temple and said, this is too messy. And they took themselves out to the desert. So we're going to go do it over here where we can be pure and we can keep the outside world at bay and we cannot let sin or anything we don't like uh, creep in. There's a separatism to that community. Um, there's a sectarianism to that community. There, there's a community that would seek their own peace and comfort and safety when they were called to go and risk and serve and even love their enemies. And I think in many ways, if you think about that community, well, that's not just keeping the gospel uh, to themselves. They were keeping themselves to themselves. And I think there's ways that we can do that too. There's ways that we can bury the gospel in the ground and not share it with others. Um, There's ways in the church that we can actually pull back and not engage as the hands and feet of Jesus because it's more comfortable. It's less messy. We can be, have things you know, nice and clean and under control um, in that environment. And so that may be exactly what Jesus is thinking of with this idea of a talent. Um, one interesting thing I've learned, um, and I've, I've learned this over the years. I've been, gosh, I got ordained as a priest in 2009. Um, so it's been a while now. 
And I've learned that when you're studying a passage, it's always good um, to ask, at least in my case, your spouse. <laughs> hey, what do you see here? Help me figure out this talent thing. And so a few years ago, I was working on this passage and talking to Holly, my wife, about it. And she said, isn't it interesting that it's the one who receives the least that buries it in the ground? Like you'd think if you got $3 million, five talents, you go, okay, well, this is enough. <laughs> we can just put that here, park it here, and we're good to go. No, it's the one who actually needed and received maybe the least that's the most cautious around it. And her takeaway was, if we think of these talents as God's grace being poured out in our lives, man, doesn't that sometimes seem like the one who, on the surface, didn't need quite as much? They didn't need five talents of grace. They didn't need two talents of grace. They just needed kind of one talent, just to make up for the foibles. That can be the person that's the, they're not open-handed with God's forgiveness with his grace, with his generosity. It's like those who have been uh, forgiven little find themselves forgiving little. And those who have been forgiven much find themselves um, conduits of God's grace. It may be that the one who only got the one talent or the one uh, measure of grace, well, they become stern and safe and cautious and don't extend it to others. I think there's one more possibility um, I actually think all of these are in mind because it's Jesus. He's brilliant. <laughs> um, I think Jesus is also always targeting his disciples and by extension us. He doesn't want us to follow in the way of self-righteousness or sectarianism or safety. He wants us to be faithful, fruitful stewards who are not afraid, who are sharing the wonderful gospel of grace who are sharing the natural gifts and talents he's given us, who are sharing and serving the church and the world with the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit he gives us. Oh, and then of course, at the most basic level, a talent is a unit of money. And so Jesus is always concerned with how we think about money. Um, he's always pretty certain that money um, is a great servant and a terrible master. And he's curious, how does our discipleship intersect um, our wallets? So he's calling them to be good and generous stewards, uh, joyfully receiving God's care and provision in their lives, and they're having open hands to use resources to invest, not to bury it in the ground, but, but to invest in the things of God, to invest in the things of the kingdom, to be cheerful, joyful, generous stewards, not sullen or fearful, or cautious. That's the third servant here, isn't it? He's hoarding the gracious gift of God, keeping it for himself, not doing anything with it. And one of the edges of this parable is just to remind us, hey, we're going to be called to give an account. He wants us to follow Jesus fully in response to the grace we've received. He wants us to know that what we see now is not everything there is. He wants us to have this perspective that Jesus will return and we will dwell with him forever. And we should yearn for that, but that should also shape how we wisely live out our days uh, right now. So one final thing um, as we get near concluding. Last week, we actually looked at 1 Thessalonians 4. And we talked about several 
uh, popular misconceptions about how Christians should view uh, what God will do in the future and how we should take comfort and joy in the words of the creed, that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And one other part of the creed, we say this every week, says, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. Those are what we know for sure. The Lord will come again in beauty and glory. Those who belong to him will rejoice when he, repe- when he appears. And we can be excited about the future God has in store for us. Even if we don't know um, all of the details, there will be this day when Christ will come again. There will be this day of the Lord. There will be this accounting, and we will be wise to live our lives in light of that. Not to be scared of it, not to dwell on it, not to be weird about it, but to live our lives um, in light of it. And so that's what the parable of the talents is trying to do, to say, hey, what does it look like to be faithful and fruitful stewards as we await that day? One last thing. This is from author and pastor uh, Frederick Beekner. And he writes about how we should think about um, the future, the second coming of Jesus, the judgment. These things that there's so many wild theories about out there. What does God want us to know about these things? Here's what he says. The New Testament proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history. And there will come a day on which all our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other will themselves be judged. The judge will be Christ. In other words, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.